Today's reading comes from Psalm 45, and that's page 471 in the Church Bibles. To the choir master, according to Lilies, Maskil, of the sons of Korah, a love song. My heart overflows with a pleasing theme. I address my verses to the king. My tongue is like the pen of a ready scribe. You are the most handsome of the sons of men. Grace is poured upon your lips. Therefore, God has blessed you forever. Gird your sword on your thigh, O mighty one, in your splendor and majesty. In your majesty, ride out victoriously for the cause of truth and meekness and righteousness. Let your right hand teach you awesome deeds. Your arrows are sharp in the heart of the king's enemies. The peoples fall under you. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of your kingdom is a scepter of uprightness. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. Your robes are all fragrant with myrrh and aloes and cassia. From ivory palaces, stringed instruments make you glad. Daughters of kings are among your ladies of honor. At your right hand stands the queen in gold of Ophir. Hear, O daughter, and consider, and incline your ear. Forget your people and your father's house, and the king will desire your beauty. Since he is your lord, bow to him. The people of Tyre will seek your favor with gifts and richest of the people. All glorious is the princess in her chamber with robes interwoven with gold. In many colored robes she is led to the king with her virgin companions following behind her. With joy and gladness they are led along as they enter the palace of the king. In place of your fathers shall be your sons and you will make them princes in all the earth. I will cause your name to be remembered in all generations. Therefore, Nations will praise you forever and ever. Thank you, Matt, for reading that. Um, so we're going to go through uh, Psalm 45. Uh, I'm not a particularly emotional person. Uh, I could be accused of being a little bit too cerebral and not too heart-feely. Uh, so the Psalms are fantastic for people like me. They're packed with emotion, uh, packed and give us like to kind of crank our hearts into life. Uh, so they can be sung at times of praise, they can be sung at times of heartache and despair, uh, times of joy, uh, they can be sung for expectation of things that are happening to us or have happened to us and to reflect upon, and a way of talking to God when we can't find the words. Some psalms, though, prophetically point to a wonderful future, should we choose to have it. And Psalm 45 is one of those psalms, um, but it's also a unique psalm in its own right. It's a song, it's a song, a song, sorry, marking the resplendent beauty of God's anointed king. We see from the title that it's a love song written by the sons of Korah, uh, most likely written for a royal wedding uh, for one of the Davidic kings. And we know every wedding is full of joy and optimism and excitement, some fear. Uh, for the bride and groom, it's the end of one thing and the beginning of something new that can be so full of promise uh, for the future. But we don't have to go too far from home to see just how many British royal weddings full of joyful expectations just don't seem to stand the test of time. I imagine some of us will recognize these words. Well, there are three of us in this marriage, so it was a bit crowded. 
King Charles and Lady Diana's marriage is possibly the most famous example of a wedding full of pomp and promise, a marriage that was ripe in accusations of adultery and anguish and ended in divorce and despair and sadly even death. In 1995, Diana gave that quote in an interview to BBC's Martin Bashir in response to a question about Camilla Parker Bowles, as we all know is now the Queen Consort. So I wonder though, what would have become of both Charles and Lady Diana if they both chose to give their full allegiance to each other rather than to other people and other desires of this world? Would she still be at the right hand of King Charles today as queen? We will never know. So it's allegiance to the king, and allegiance to the king is what I want us to keep in the back of our mind as we go through this. Look at me with verse 1. My heart overflows with a pleasing theme. I address my verses to the king. My tongue is like that, as like the pen of a ready scribe. The psalmist here is bursting with the spirit of the Lord. <clears throat> I remember recently Benji just got his uh, first promotion in jiu-jitsu. You get a little tab once you do certain skills and... Uh, and he came home so excited that he was scrambling through the door to tell his mum, tripping over himself to, to tell her this news. And maybe you've had that kind of news in your life where you're just bursting to tell someone. Uh, well, the psalmist is bursting like this times a million. It's just like David too, uh, David in, in 2 Samuel 23, the psalmist is also saying, the spirit of the Lord speaks by me. His word is on my tongue. There's a message our Lord wants to convey through this psalm, a prophetic pointing to a glorious and beautiful king. It's not King David. It's not the king in the line of David getting married, who this psalm was more than likely originally presented to, but another king, a greater king, the greatest king, and the king that all other kings will bend their knee to. Uh, the Dutch theologian Abraham Kuyper said of this king, there's not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, is, uh, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, mine. Christ is saying, this psalm is about me. It's all about me, really. Spoiler alert, the whole Bible is about me. Every chapter and every letter, every full stop is pointing directly towards me. Even where we live is mine. The earth under our feet, that's mine. The chair we are sitting on today, I own that, that's mine. The molecules that make it up are mine, I created them. And the air that we're breathing in, that's also mine. So I want us to see here, at the beginning, that this psalm is pointing towards our Christ. But it's pointing towards him in a very specific way. And I want to talk about how he is perceived here as the resplendent warrior groom. As we see in verses 2 to 9, the psalmist describes this king as a resplendent warrior groom. See in verse 2, you are the most handsome of the sons of men. Literally the most handsome human being that's ever lived or will ever live, which has put me in my place. In the game of top trumps, this king is, you know, he's way ahead. He's got double points. There's no one even close to him. Now a skeptic might say, hang on. If you're trying to say that this is King Jesus, then how do you explain the fact that he is supposed to come meek and lowly in the words of Isaiah 53, had no form or majesty that we should look at him, and no beauty that we should desire him? Well, 
So those who met Jesus in the first century met a plain-looking man of a particular height and a particular weight, the eye color, a particular brown or a particular blue, who knows. But physical appearance is only one and very shallow type of beauty. And our Lord Jesus' beauty was certainly more than skin deep. I'm convinced that the beauty of his perfect sinless character would have radiated from him to all of those who recognized his true identity. Recognizing it before he came back, but I'm sure as he came back on the third day, his disciples who put their trust in him, what they saw was the most beautiful human being they've ever seen in their lives. So when Christ comes back in brilliant white, gleaming like that of the sun, bright and holy, we won't be able to look at his beauty and even think about comparing ourselves to him. I find that both challenging and comforting. For my king needs to be this way. The psalmist goes on to say, Grace is poured upon your lips, therefore God has blessed you forever. Uh, the film The King's Speech, if you've seen it, is a biography of King Edward's radio speech uh, to rally and comfort the country during World War II. And it's about the coaching he needed to overcome this pronounced stutter, to deliver it perfectly and illustrate, and it perfectly illustrates, sorry, the power of speaking gracefully with authority if people are to be gripped and rallied. But the psalmist says this king's speech is poured out with perfect grace and winsome truth. And God will bless this king's words and bless them forever. If we marry this with verse 6, your throne, O God, is forever, the psalmist is no longer able to contain the true meaning and the true nature of the king this psalm is symbolically pointing forwards to, even if he doesn't fully understand it himself. Keep a finger in Psalm 45 and turn with me to Hebrews 1, verse 8 and 9. The Hebrew author here writes, but of, but of the Son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever, and the scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. By quoting Psalm 45, the author of Hebrews has laid his cards on the table. He declares that Jesus is this forever king and the son of God that this psalm is talking about. Now remember, this, this is a psalm for a wedding of a Davidic king. That's somebody who is in the line of David. But who that king is doesn't really matter. It's not really important for us to, to know. We cannot actually work out who it is exactly. But as I said, it doesn't matter. What's important is that it's really pointing towards a divine king. Uh, and we now know that this king is our king, Jesus. He's the resplendent bridegroom. But he's also the resplendent warrior groom. He by far excels any king that followed David and all his heirs that came throughout Old Testament history. If you read verses 3 and 5, we'll, we'll come back to verse 4 later, but the psalmist now wants to speak of his beauty of his war. He says, Gird your sword on your thigh, O mighty one, in your splendor and majesty. Let's not miss the imagery here. Uh, sword on your thigh, splendor, 
majesty, these words are only used to characterize God. The very same words will be used again to describe God in Psalm 96. Uh, He's already been used in Psalm 21. And again, it is used in the Messianic prophecy of of Isaiah 33. So I spoke just now of the beauty of his war, but why the beauty of his war? I think this king will ride out victoriously, but not as an oppressor who seeks more territory like the sinful kings and rulers that came before him, but instead as a champion in the cause of truth, humility, and righteousness. It leaves us to ask, how great is our king when we compare him to any other king that's ever ruled? Sword on your thigh. We live in a world today where the only swords and arrows we are confronted with are cheap plastic ones that our kids play with in the back garden. Not that dangerous. We live in a culture today where the general view of Jesus is like a cheap plastic sword, safe, harmless. If we stop 10 people outside the church today and ask them to describe Jesus, I doubt anyone would use the word warrior king. I wonder if it jumps to our mind that fast. Some will say he is love, others will say he is kind, he will make your life here on earth better. Yes, he is love, and yes, he is kind, but he is a warrior. He's not just any warrior, but the greatest warrior that the world has ever known or will ever know. So with his sword on his thigh, and with arrows that are sharp in the heart of his enemies, we look at verse 4. And five, in your majesty, ride out victoriously for the cause of truth and meekness and righteousness. Let your hand teach your awesome deeds. He is a warrior bridegroom that will overcome all the evil deeds done in this world. He'll win, he'll win victory over it in righteous truth, humility, and justice. And we can just look around and see how truth and humility and justice has been kicked and stomped in society today. You look from every position you can think of and you can see that our society do not want to hold these things up as truth and value them. But this king, end of verse 4, will let his right hand teach his enemies his awesome deeds. His right hand refers to his combat hand, holds the sword and it looses the arrows. Verse 5, your arrows are sharp in the heart of the king's enemies. The peoples fall under you. I think these verses, that climax in verse 5, I think shows us four things. One, a fact for all. Two, a promise for all. Three, a comfort for some. And four, a warning for some. One, the fact. King Jesus has an unlimited supply of very sharp arrows. There are two types of arrows in his quiver. Two, a promise for all. Before or on the final day of this earth, each and every person's heart will be pierced by one of these very sharp arrows. Free a comfort for some. If you are truly born again, then your soft heart has already been pierced clean through with Jesus' sharp arrow of the gospel truth. Your old self has died and you've been born again in Christ. But for a warning to others, If you've not responded to the good news of the gospel, if you've hardened your heart 
to the offer of salvation that our King holds to you, and you die in your sins today, then our Lord's arrow of judgment will pierce your heart of stone, and you'll never be able to remove it. So if we're here today because it's Sunday, and that's what we do on Sundays, or maybe you're a, a non-believer and you're seeking answers, maybe that you, you say you're a Christian, but you know you're not really following Christ and giving allegiance, but you're more in this world, then these are hard words to hear. And each one of us must search our own heart and ask ourselves what they mean for us, what they mean to us. Two very different arrows, two choices, and two very different results. Either way, your heart will be pierced. For there's no way around this fact. Our king fires arrows of merciful grace in the shape of the gospel. And he fires arrows of justice to those who will not bend their knee. C.S. Lewis sums it up perfectly in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. He says, Lucy talking to Mr. Beaver about Aslan. She asks, is he quite safe? I should feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Who said anything about safe? Of course he's not safe. But he is good. He isn't safe but he is good. So now we have our image of the resplendent warrior groom. The psalmist turns his attention in verses 10 to 15 to the betrothed adorned bride. Now anyone who's been to a wedding, or anyone who is married, will know the truth of modern weddings. A simple fact that is every husband in this room, that everyone, we could all attest to it. On the wedding day, it's all eyes on the bride. In fact, when I was first introduced to my beautiful wife, Svenja uh, came and met my friends, and my closest friends all came up to me in turn, separately, nevertheless, and relayed to me the same true sentiment. You are punching above your weight here, Adam. <laughs> or the words of my best friend and best man, she's a little out of your league. I 100% agree. Uh, on our wedding day, it was even more evident. The bride is where the spotlight focuses when the wedding march, wedding march begins to play. She's the star. But the psalmist here turns his attention to the bride. And it's surprising to see that she is not the main focus of this wedding celebration. Read with me verses 10 and 12. Hear, O daughter, and consider and incline your ear. Forget your people in your father's house, and the king will desire your beauty. Since he is your lord, bow to him. The psalmist actually exhorts her. He emphatically urges the bride to, verse 10, incline your ear. Listen. Listen to my words. The bride is called to pay special attention and is soberly urged to transfer her loyalties from her old allegiances, that of her father and the people of where she's from and her old life, a place where she would have held high standing and honor, She's told to give herself fully and completely to her king and husband. She's told to forget her old life, to forget, to completely disregard, not to remember or notice, not to yearn for, not to turn back and look for. We can look to two women in the Old Testament for an insight of what allegiance to the world looks like and what allegiance to the king looks like. First, the world. Genesis 19.26 reads, But Lot's wife looked back, and she became a pillar of salt. Lot's wife showed that her heart and allegiance 
was truly in Sodom and Gomorrah. Where all kinds of fleshly and worldly sinful temptation was on tap 24-7. A great example, though, of forgetting her old life and giving allegiance to God, we can find in Ruth. Ruth 1, Ruth turned her back on her family and people when she professed, Your people shall be my people, and your God, my God. Ruth forgets her old life completely and gives her full allegiance to God. The simple command in verse 11 in this psalm reads, Since he is your Lord, bow to him. It's worth noting, and just as Sarah bowed herself and submitted to Abraham, calling him Lord, likewise the king's bride here is to show reverence for her husband and to bow down, literally to worship in submissive love. Not only because he is the king, but because he is her husband. Now, don't get me wrong. The submission Sarah gives to her husband goes hand in hand with the dignity that is derived to her from him. Likewise, in Psalm 45, the king in return will desire the bride's beauty. He'll do anything and everything for his bride. He'll even die for her. He'll even die on a cross. For a cautionary tale, we can turn to Solomon, the wisest man who ever lived. How he forgot his allegiance with our Lord when he was told not to marry foreign women because of their beliefs in pagan false gods and their refusal to submit to him and recognize the true God. His brides were certainly not willing to forget their people or their fathers. They would not leave their false gods. And so instead, Solomon weakly accepted and embraced their culture and religions. The cost of this bride's full allegiance to this warrior king in this psalm is immensely high. It's immensely high, but the rewards are much higher. I mentioned in the example of Sarah and the exalted position she held being the wife of Abraham. Well, here the imagery ensures the bride is also going to be exalted in dignity and honor because of who she is being wed to. His friends and subjects are now her friends and subjects. We can read in verse 12 of the immense wealth of the Tyrians of Tyre. There would have been billionaires in today's standards, billionaires of the Middle East of that time, holding immense power and influence. How they would pour out their wealth on this bride because she's the king's bride. And they would do that because he's more powerful than even them. So we can see now the bride is the gainer, not the loser. She's the gainer by the honor shown towards her. This king is so desirable, so perfect, uh, that his, his righteousness and his grace, that his bride inherits all of this and so much more than what she has to leave behind. She sees the king's beauty and responds in complete adoration. She's willing to, vote, to devote herself to him 100% and to give up her old life and ties. And so can we start to see what this psalm is trying to say? For us today, it's saying, have you inclined your ear? For we are the brides. This may not be a revelation in, in Christian teaching, but I think sometimes for that reason, we need to be reminded, stop to think about what that means. We are the bride, ladies, you are the bride. Gentlemen, yes, in this imagery, you are also the bride. Paul's words to Corinth, he says, to present yourself as a pure bride 
to your one husband. So is it time to part with old loyalties and embrace the beginning of something new? Something that will last forever and that's worth giving up all that you hold dear in this world. What old things are we still holding on to? What desires of this world still causes you to want to look back? I would suggest that we think hard about these over the next uh, days and weeks ahead. To unshackle yourself from the en enemies, these enemies that do not hold up anything uh, of honor to our king. Verse 7 says, the, king's love, the king loves righteousness and hates wickedness. We look at the culture we're in, we have to ask ourselves, is it righteous or wicked? What's it got to offer you in return for your loyalty? We live in a country that tells children the opposite of God's word. Our Lord says he created us male and female. The culture says no binary and gender is just a social construct. Is that righteous or wicked? God said he knitted us in the womb. The culture says it's not a baby, but it's a clump of cells. Righteous or wicked? Recently learned that we live in a world where the, the, the children's sex slave trade is a $150 billion industry. Righteous, wicked. So we ask ourselves, where is our allegiance? To this world that says they know better and live better, the reality is, is we have 10,000 reasons. We only need one to leave our people in our Father's house. That one reason is Jesus. Jesus offers us something far, far better. Something infinitely more beautiful. A relationship with a living God, with the living God, made possible through his perfect son. We see now that the psalm exalts the bride in her beauty in a robe of brilliant gold as she is led to the king. She's made her allegiance clear and she is for her warrior king. She's beautiful in the sight of all those around. Her virgin bridesmaids carry her trail and follow behind. She's made herself pure for this perfect king. This is what's asked of us. And finally, the psalmist points to the future. Points towards their lasting global legacy. Verse 16 and 17, the Psalter once again addresses the king. And we know that the Psalter addresses the king because of the masculine indicators in the Hebrew word, your. Verse 16, read with me. In place of your fathers shall be your sons. You will make them princes in all the earth. I will, co I will cause your name to be remembered in all generations. Therefore, nations will praise you forever and ever. It was customary back then to, to wish the newlyweds a prosperous future uh, filled with abundance of offspring. These words could simply uh, be just a formal good wishes to the king of that time. But when we remember the prophetic words in verse 6, your throne, O God, is forever and ever, we are, of course, pointed to a king that will, re will reign forever in his kingdom. We're pointed towards a bride who represents a glimpse at God's plan that will bring many sons to glory, who will, in Revelation 6, reign on earth with their master, their king, and whose praise will be endless and sung by all nations forever and ever. All of this will be fulfilled in Jesus Christ, our beautiful and divine bridegroom, 
are bridegroom of a bride that is the people of Christ, that is the church. So as you reflect on this psalm, be overwhelmed by the perfect loveliness of Christ as our King. The victory he won at the cross. For he came meek and lonely on a donkey the first time. But hear this psalm's warning as well. Each and every one of us recognize he will come back. He won't be on a donkey, but on a white horse. And he will come back, as it says, to, to judge the living and dead and take us as his faithful bride if we are indeed in Christ. So whatever chains you've placed on yourselves to be better accepted in this world, whatever allegiances you have forged to better fit in with the culture, whatever loyalties you hold towards the enemies of our glorious king and groom, I urge you to turn away and unshackle yourself from them so that you may be presented to Jesus as a pure bride with single-hearted worship and perfect allegiance. For your reward will be to marvel in awe at the inward beauty that will be given to you by his grace. To sing in joyful ecstasy at, ecstasy at the promise that we will inherit everlasting life and per, in the perfect presence of our perfect Savior, our divine King. And rest safe in the knowledge that he is worth giving up everything in this broken world. He is beautiful. He is righteous. He is grace. He is merciful. He's our king and he has chosen you. To the Christian, I leave you with the words of another song by Shane and Shane that I think captures the, songs, the psalm's great promise. You ransomed your bride on the day that you died, ascended in heaven in glory. We stand clothed in white with our voice lifted high, saying, come and return in your glory. To those who've not responded to Jesus and his gracious proposition to become his bride and have eternal life, I want to leave you with this image. I mentioned earlier that we will all have our hearts pierced by one of Jesus' arrows, one way or another. Well, Jesus came to us 2,000 years ago and allowed his hands to be pierced for us. He allowed his feet to be pierced, and he took all the wrath of our sins that were due to us onto himself. In John 19, we read, But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once there came out blood and water. Blood and water came from the Roman spear, penetrating Jesus' heart after he died. We know this because Jesus' heart would have filled with fluid from the torture he endured. Jesus had his heart pierced for you. He rose on the third day so that you may have a chance to do the same. The good news of the gospel is that all who drop their swords turn away from their old ways in this broken world and ask God for forgiveness. He will gracefully welcome you home as his child and grant you eternal life. So if you haven't yet, I urge you to respond today to this glorious king's proposal and say, I do. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, thank you for this psalm. Thank you for how it points towards a better and glorious future through your son's sacrifice. We pray that we take from this psalm encouragement should we be in his grace. We pray if 
we are not in his grace, that we can see the warning that this psalm gives. We pray for our friends and family who are not in Christ. We pray that we have the courage to turn to them and tell them the good news of Jesus Christ. We pray, Lord, as we go forward today, that we remember this wonderful gift and that our role as the bride, as the church, as we sit and wait and long for our groom to come, that we keep our allegiance with him. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.